Good morning, New Hope. It's good to see you here. If you're visiting for the first time, I want to say welcome. If you've been to some of the other parts of this series, I'm really glad that you're getting the whole gamut of the argument here that we're bringing in this series, Reasons for Believing. If you're the first time here, I'd highly encourage you to pick up some notes, which will help you as we move along this series this morning. So with no further ado, I just want to say so far in this series, we have responded to the first four challenges that I outlined in the first message. And we saw that real truth exists. That's what we saw. And it's knowable. Yet we, that's where we started this whole series. Then we looked to the evidence for God. How do we know there's a God? And we looked at specifically scientific and cosmological evidence for that. And we saw that there was evidence for a beginning of the universe. And if there's a beginning of the universe, it pointed to a beginner. We saw that there was complex design in the universe and that pointed to intelligence because if you have random chaos to bring order out of that, you need intelligence. For example, your kids' rooms. If it's a disaster, the only way it's going to get organised is somebody with intelligence goes in there and sorts it all out, right? And puts it all in order. That's exactly the same principle. And we also saw in that second week the whole argument from moral law. Now, the week after that, we looked at eight characteristics of this God. And you know what? They looked straight and sounded strangely familiar to almost like the God of the Bible. Funny that. And then last week, we looked at the concept because we hear the objection, oh, miracles don't exist. And we saw very logically that if God exists, then miracles are possible. That was the simple logic. And conversely, if there is no God, there are no miracles, period. That's how it was. Now today, I'm going to look at the fifth challenge. It is a critically important challenge, Esther. Because you're going to get challenged with this at school and at university. And it's this. The New Testament is unreliable. Actually, it's a bunch of fables written by men. Anybody ever heard that? Can I see your hands? Okay, you've all heard it. Now my question to you, because God says to you, Michelle, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And do so with gentleness and respect, First Peter 3.15. How are you going to answer that last one? This challenge today, number five. Well, the Bible's unreliable. It's fables. How do you know it's not? Can you answer that without referring to the Bible? Because you can't use recursive logic. That's not allowed. So how are we going to do that? So my question is, just before we rush off, how are you going to answer that tomorrow at work when somebody comes up to you and says, you're a Christian, aren't you, Grant? What's this book you believe? The Bible? That was just written by a bunch of men. It's folklore, tales. How are you going to answer that credibly? It's very quiet in here. <laughs> now there is a potential problem with that question. I just want to point out the obvious here. If, and it's a very big if, if the New Testament is unreliable, then our beliefs about Jesus, His birth and His resurrection have no basis in fact. That's true. It's unassailable logic. Now, to answer this critical question, which you're going to get asked, we're going to ask four specific questions. 
And these questions are, quickly, are the New Testament documents close enough to the recorded events to be reliable? Are they close enough? Do we have early testimony? And by the way, the earlier, the better. Right? Fair point. The second we're going to ask is, okay, have the documents been copied correctly or are they full of a bunch of mistakes? We've got to address that. Third, were the writers credible? Were they reliable? Did they tell the truth? And by the way, are there any independent witnesses of these events? Because any independent eyewitness is the best method of establishing what happened. Is there any embarrassing testimony that would make the author look stupid? And then lastly, is there other evidence that shows the New Testament to be reliable? In other words, is there somebody who doesn't like Christianity fessing up the facts? And can we know about that? That's outside of the Bible. What's the extra biblical proof? That's what we're going to look at today to arm you on this question number five. So our first task is to find out this, very simply. When did Jesus die? What year was it? AD what? AD 33. Just park that in your mind. How near to AD 33 when Jesus was crucified were the New Testament books actually written? The closer to the day where Jesus lived, the more reliable the documents should be. Conversely, the further from that date, there's more room for claims that the documents are unreliable. I get that argument. And by the way, I just want to clear up a misunderstanding before we even start about the New Testament. We are not talking about one writing when we talk about the New Testament. Did you know that? We're talking about 27 separate scrolls written by nine authors over a 20 to 50 year period. It is a collection of sources just compiled into something we have called the New Testament. 27, okay, different scrolls we're talking about. Now, let me be clear because somebody's going to flummox you with this one and if you don't know the answer, you're going to feel embarrassed or put in a corner or trapped or stuck. None of the originals do we have. They have not been discovered. None. So be clear about that. Don't worry about that. But I want you to be clear. So, so, well, you haven't got the originals. You're going to say you're right. And then you're going to follow up with some arguments I'm going to give you later, which is very solid. This is no problem to a Christian, as you will see later. We don't have any. So don't feel boxed or bullied by that statement. It is, so far we haven't discovered them. That doesn't mean they're not going to show up because some are still showing up at the moment. We discovered another eight manuscripts in the last little while and we'll get to that later. Now, regarding the dates, the oldest nearly complete entire 27 all combined to one, we have as back as early and it's a ways back as 250 AD. That's the Chester Beatty Papai. Now, for individual books, that's all put together. For individual books, even critics say that Matthew, Mark and Luke all predate 
Even those who are hostile to Christianity, all of them say it all predates AD 70. That's within 40 years of Christ's resurrection when many eyewitnesses were still alive. Now, question to you. Do historians write about events today 40 years ago? Do they? Absolutely they do. What was happening 40 years ago from this year? Do you remember that? Commonwealth Games, anybody remember that? Anybody remember the movie, The Towering Inferno? Remember that? That was 40 years ago, guys. That'll date it. That's what we're talking about. So 40 years ago. Now, the most famous critic who is very hostile to Christianity, who's an archaeologist, and he founded the Death of God movement, so he's not exactly a friend of ours, right? He came to believe that most of the New Testaments, including all four Gospels, were written as early as AD 40. That's within seven years. And he's our most vociferous critic. That's the equivalent to, let me put it in our terms, when the Bourne Ultimatum came out. <laughs> okay, not that long ago. Okay, so let's just put that. And he's a critic of ours. So, a couple of reasons why sceptical critics agree to such an early date. This is important. Well, first of all, the greatest disaster in the Jewish nation up to that point happened in one pivotal point which you should never forget. AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was trashed. Stone by stone, it was demolished. The temple was just destroyed by the Romans and Jerusalem was crushed and besieged. The temple where Jesus had taught was torn apart stone by stone. And those of you who love history can read about that. That's a fact. Nobody disputes that. It was trashed, AD 70. Now, if the Gospels had been written after AD 70, we would expect the Gospels to at least mention or refer to that event. Actually, they portray the temple as unharmed, still standing. Notice the following account here in Mark 13. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, these stones, you guys, you've got to understand, they go from about here to about here. And that was one stone, and there was wide from the front of that stage back here. They were huge. These weren't little pebbles. Massive stones. And then Jesus turns around to this guy and said, hey, do you see these stones, these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That was prophesying what's going to happen. That was like unfathomable. Who's going to do that? Now, the second reason why the critics come to such an early date is there's not enough time for myths and legends to develop. There is not enough time. With the book of Acts closing with Paul under house arrest in Rome in AD 62, it was written just 30 years from Christ's time. On top of that, Luke wrote his gospel before Acts. He wrote Acts. Look at this. How do we know Luke was written before Acts? Because Luke reminds us here. He reminds the recipient of Acts, a man by the name of Theophilus, who was a very important Roman, uh, Roman official. He says here, in my former book, he's referring to a book. What was that? The Gospel of Luke. So Acts, but before that, the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus. I wrote all these things that Jesus began to do and teach. He was a physician, by the way, a doctor, like some of you. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions of the Holy Spirit to the apostles he chose, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men 
and gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now the next slide is the intro to the book of Luke that he's referring to. Here it is in Luke 1. Many have undertaken, see, many people have undertaken to draw up an account, I love it, it's very precise language, of the things that are being fulfilled amongst us just as they're being handed down to us by those from, who, from, from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good to me also to write to an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that proves he's referring to the previous book, Theophilus. So that you know with certainty, with certainty of the things that you have been taught, there is the reason why he did that. Now, stay with me a second. A quick bit of history. So if Acts was written around AD 62, then Luke's Gospel was written about AD 60 or earlier. And Matthew and Mark were written even before Luke in the mid-50s with sources from the 30s, only a few years, because he died in AD 33. Only a few years after Jesus did. This is very important. Why? Because there wasn't enough time for misreligions to develop. Now, this graphic is very conservative. It's a worst-case scenario because, remember, even Robinson, the famous critic, says most of the New Testament, including all of the Gospels, were written as early as AD 70. That's within seven years. For example, take the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Take that claim. It is the most unlikely claim that anybody could possibly dream up. Even those that declared it will be laughed at at Jerusalem unless he had reliable eyewitnesses to back up their words. Because he could go back and check and say, hang on, here's the grave, here's his bones, da-da-da-da-da. You, you, you could prove that. Now it takes at least, research shows it takes at least two generations for, or 80 years for, uh, for, gener- uh, for misalligence to develop because all the eyewitnesses must be dead along with their children. If less time elapses, there are too many people still alive and would challenge that. And eyewitness accounts are of exceedingly high value. So, from the eyewitness evidence is exactly what the New Testament writers claim. Next slide. Peter and John were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. This is, you killed. You can feel the finger pointing. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We Peter and John, we are witnesses of this. Right? Next one. Paul said at least 251 other eyewitnesses, excluding the apostles, were still alive at the time he wrote 1 Corinthians around AD 55. Look at this. Jesus was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, and after that... He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. How many? Okay, most of whom are still alive. Most is over half. So I said at least 251. That's where I got my number. Okay. So Paul says in effect, if you don't believe me, ask them. He's sticking in their face. Check it out. Go on. There's 250 other beggars you can go and talk to. Check it out. You see what they, you hear what they saw. 
So he's really poking him in the eye there. Now, so are the New Testament documents close to the events they describe? Absolutely yes. William F. Albright, who was a renowned 20th century archaeologist, who was originally highly sceptical and highly doubtful about the New Testament's reliability, he was a sceptic of the highest order. After studying this evidence for years, remember coming at this, I'm a sceptic, not as a believer. This is what he determines. Every book in the New Testament was written by a baptised Jew within 50 to 40 years of Jesus. Now remember, all of Paul's works um, have had to be written before he died because he died in the mid-60s. So we have an early date is what I'm getting at there. And one more man whom you're all familiar with, the man who did Narnia, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. Addressing the myth and legend claim, I want you to listen to possibly and arguably one of the world's foremost authorities on stories and myths from Oxford University. He weighs in with his professional opinion. He says, all I am in private life is a literary critic and a historian. That's my job. And I am prepared to say that on the basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well that the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. And by the way, this man started out an atheist before he became a believer in Jesus. An academic of the highest order. So what I want to suggest to you is that we can see beyond reasonable doubt the first point, that the New Testament documents are early and they are close to the events they describe. Now, you may say, okay, just because the New Testament accounts were recorded in close proximity to Christ's life does not mean they've been copied correctly throughout subsequent centuries. And I go, I accept that. Just because I accept they're early and close does not mean they're being copied accurately. You see where I'm going with that? So our next task is to examine the evidence to find out whether these documents are, as some alleged, filled with mistakes or, on the other hand, are they actually exactly reliable? Are the documents accurate? And to get to the answer to that, we need to look at a couple of things. How does the time frame and the number of copies compare to that of other ancient documents? Please take careful note of this next slide. Firstly, thousands of New Testament manuscripts have survived. We have them today. You can see them in England, Egypt, I mean, all around the world. Israel, you just see them in, in, the, in, the, um, in the museums. Let's take, for example, the first number there. We have 5,686 complete or partial Greek copies. That's not including the other languages. There's over 19,000 in Aramaic, in Syriac, Coptic, Latin, and Arabic alone. So you do a quick add there, and what have you got? You've got nearly 25,000, but I've kept it conservative. Let's just keep it Greek. And let's go for 5,696. How does that compare to what survived 
other ancient documents. Now, this chart shows clearly that only a very few copies of most other ancient documents exist. What's the next closest? Homer's Iliad, right? With 643 manuscripts, most other ancient works, notice here, survive on fewer than a dozen manuscripts. Yet, few historians would ever question the historicity of the events that they describe. Now notice also the long time gap between the event's occurrence and the closest surviving document. This is critical. Sometimes, some of these are more than a thousand years. So it happened then, and there's a thousand years hence, and one pops up. Really? The New Testament gap is tiny. You can hardly even see it. It's 25. The next one down is 500 years. There's Ophimes and Herodias. Plato, 1,200 years. Caesar, Julius Caesar. Gaelic Wars. Massive differences. So the New Testament gap is tiny and was written when the eyewitnesses lived. Here's a different view uh, in a chart form. With thousands of New Testament copies, thousands of them, that clearly answers the quantity question. Undisputable, you are on solid ground. Nobody will take you to task on that. We can easily compare and cross-check the copies, by the way, of all of them to determine whether we have accurate copies, right? If you have copies, I don't know about you, but if you've ever produced two documents and trying to think, now hang on, is this the same? Lucky in word, we can compare documents, but we can effectively do that across thousands and thousands of them to see we've got exactly the same stuff. We'll get to that in a second. So, it is accurate to say this, that the New Testament has earlier manuscripts, it has more manuscripts, and it's more accurately copied than any other book from ancient history. You can take that to the bank and argue it. Earlier manuscripts, more manuscripts, and more accurately copied than any other book. Be of good cheer, Christian. And seeker, if you're looking today to figure out this, please weigh this evidence carefully. So how do we know that? How do we know that things are being copied accurately? Well, by comparing the surviving manuscripts, we find out what the original said. And you can test for errors easily. Now, to give you a bit of background on how this happened, I want you to take you back to AD 303. And there's a man that was around that made Hitler look like a nun. Diocletian, in February of AD 303, he was a Roman emperor, and he ordered three specific edicts upon the Christians, specifically the Christians, because he believed that the existence of Christianity was breaking the covenant between Rome and their gods. He was, a ba- he was a piece of work, this guy. And the edicts called for the destruction of ch- all churches, so just trashed 
all manuscripts trashed, burnt by the thousands. Books and the immediate killing of all Christians. This guy was in for it. And just to place him in history, those of you who know history, um, Constantine came after him who reversed the whole thing. But here's my point. Even if Diocletian had succeeded in wiping out every single manuscript of the face of this planet, he could not have destroyed our ability to accurately reconstruct the New Testament. He couldn't have done it. Why? Because the early church fathers, men of the second and third centuries, such as Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen and Tertullian, and others, had quoted the New Testament so much, actually, to be exact, 36,280 times, all but 11 verses of the New Testament can be reconstructed just from their quotations. And this is what it looks like. Very specific. So you understand now, we can take those 36,289 and we can easily reconstruct the original. Let me show you how this works. How is an original reconstructed? Here are four lines. Just put the first one up, please. What does that say? Pardon? Talk to me. Okay, so it didn't take too much to figure that out. Okay, that's the first document that you found. You're not quite sure, but you're reasonably sure that that could be pointing in the right direction. <laughs> and then you find another document. Next one. But this one, the moth didn't eat the D, it, it, it ate the M. Hmm. So we're starting to feel a bit more confident. How about the third one? Yo. Okay, I'm getting the feeling. Um, my heart's starting to beat a bit better. And then the fourth one. Now, I have woefully over-exaggerated the decimation to the Scriptures. Nothing like that. But that shows you how we did it with 36,000 of them. So we can be dead sure. The sheer number of New Testament manuscripts helps us accurately reconstruct and confirm the original text from quotations, not the originals. So by comparing the surviving manuscripts, we find what the original said, it's obvious. You see the methodology? Makes perfect sense. So let's just summarise what we've seen. We've seen that the New Testament has more manuscripts, right? It has an abundance of copies of the New Testament documents, many more than that of the 10 best pieces of literature, ancient literature combined. We win hands down. Tick. They are earlier we saw that in the charts. Three, more accurately copied. I haven't got time to go into all of the details of that, but you've seen some summary of that. There are no works from ancient history that come even within a bull's roar, not even close in New, uh, uh, to the New Testament in terms of manuscript support. Nowhere near. So the New Testament is a highly reliable document that we can trust. Question number three which we're going to address. Were the New Testament writers reliable? Now, the New Testament writers were eyewitnesses or associates of eyewitnesses of the events they recorded. Here's what some of them said. 
Let's just see to make sure we understand that they were claiming to be eyewitnesses. The man who saw it, that's the crucifixion, has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. John also says here, this is a disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. Misconception that people memorise things here. They wrote, Luke is a, a historian of the highest order, by the way. Impeccable detail, as a doctor should be. Here's another one. These men claim to have seen Christ's miracles, his death and his resurrection. Includes numbers of quotes here. God has raised Jesus to their life and we are all witnesses of this fact. Acts 4.20. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Look, if you had seen a risen Christ, nobody's going to shut you up. You're done. You're done being intimidated by these brutal Romans. 1 Peter 5.1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness, notice this too though, of Christ's sufferings. He suffered deeply. So all these men claim to have seen Christ's miracles, his death, resurrection and ascension into heaven. So what reasons do we have to count on their reliability and their honesty? Now, I want to posit a few things to you. The first reason we can count on the document's reliability and honesty is this. They include embarrassing details about themselves. <laughs> now, most people who record an account, in which they play a fairly important part, endeavour to do so to make themselves look reasonably good. No one wants to be embarrassed by what they actually said or did and especially record their stupidity, right? You're trying to, oh, let's just forget about that part. <laughs> you know, I don't want to focus on that. But the Gospels actually make the disciples look pretty dim-witted. Which is an interesting sign of authenticity. For example, consider these facts. Firstly, they failed to understand what Christ was saying to them about his up and coming death. I mean, they've been with him for three years, my goodness. And they still didn't get it. Mark 9 says that, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. How about this? And the, and the very night he needed friends and company, these jokers fell asleep on the job. Would you write and publish to your boss that you fell asleep on the job? <laughs> not really. They fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane. And then, then all of a sudden, the heat comes on, Pete whips out a sword, whops off the air, Jesus' ear, and next minute, they all run and hide like cowards. That's not a particularly flattering thing to record about yourself, oh mighty men of valour. <laughs> and you'll read about that in Matthew 26. Some of them, I know you find this hard to believe, they doubted. They actually doubted even after being crucified and was raised from the dead. Matthew 28 records that. <laughs> it says, uh, 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Not a very nice thing to say. Pretty, you know. 
How about some other things here? They included embarrassing details about Jesus' burial and resurrection. Now, this really gets me. If they were going to invent this, they certainly would not have included this in their invention. Who carried Jesus' cross in his moment of after flogging to Golgotha? Who was that? Simon of Cyrene. Interestingly, he was a black man. Who buried Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea. And who else was there to help him? Mary. Mary Magdalene. And by the way, let me clear up a misunderstanding about her, which I found so pervasive among Christians. She was not a prostitute. That's total tripe. Where is any biblical evidence for that? Big misapprehension propagated through many teachers. She was never a prostitute. She did have seven demons cast out of her. But I would challenge anybody to provide biblical evidence that she was a prostitute. By the way, my point is here. Where were the disciples? Where were the disciples when Jesus was hauling that hoary great cross up a fairly reasonably steep hill for a long way? Scarpered. Where were they, where were they when they were preparing his uh, burying Jesus? Gomberger. Who were they? Actually, they were trembling in a room with a locked door like a bunch of sissies. They weren't. They weren't there. They abandoned their posts. If you're going to invent that, why would you put that in there? Who were the first at the resurrection? Who were the first witnesses? Women. Why is that relevant? Well, I hate to say this, but it was a fact back then. Women's testimony back then was not admissible in a court of law. So why would you lead with something in their view is weak? Doesn't make a shred of sense. And again, the big boys were trembling in a room. Those who are supposed to follow Jesus. Christ's followers wouldn't have invented these facts, which are anything but complimentary. Huh? If they made these accounts up, they'd have presented themselves as the first witnesses there on the scene. Yeah, but they didn't. Now, another reason why we know the New Testament writers are reliable, we can prove, is that the New Testament alone contains 31 historically confirmed people, let alone events and places, and we could spend days on this. If you want to know more about that, buy Dr. Geisler's book at the back. History confirms, uh, here's just eight of them mentioned in two verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, where Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Etruria, and Traconius, and Licinius, and Tetrarch of of Alabine, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now there were eight there, Historically confirmed people, any historian you can dig up, and it marks an exact date. It was AD 49. That pinpoints that. When you put all that, it's like saying John Keir was in power with, uh, you know, I don't know, Obama, and, you know, the House has just had a change. And so it's pinning this down, it narrows it down to an exact time frame. Now, there were also eight very powerful men who had lived at that time, men of high account, who could have caused a lot of trouble for the disciples if their claims about Christ's death and resurrection were false. Lying about these events could have cost them everything. 
Now, without going through it, but just to show you what's available so you know you're on very solid ground, here's a quick list of 31, those 31 people in the New Testament that you can go read about and compare historically who they were, what they did, in what time frame, and they match up exactly with the Scriptures. There's the first lot. And the second. Another example of historical and archaeological veracity of the manuscripts is right there in front of you. Classical scholar and historian Colin Hemmer chronicles Luke's accuracy in the book of Acts verse by verse. With painstaking detail, Hemmer identifies 84 facts in the last 16 chapters of Acts alone that are being confirmed by historical and archaeological evidence. You are on solid ground. Here's another few. Here's a summary of just New Testament figures quoted by non-Christian sources and confirmed by archaeology. It shows that the New Testament is authentic. You can go through those and read those. You'll find those ones, by the way, in, again, Dr. Geisler's book. Now, another mark of authenticity is this. The Gospel writers, and some of you may have seen this, actually record some differences about certain events. Anybody seen that? Okay. Now, they do not record contradictions, yet they do explain things from different angles. What was that movie? Viewpoint? No. What's it called? Lee, what's it called? There was a movie came out of one event that was seen from about seven different angles of a guy getting shot. What was that called? Shoot it? No, no, no. Anyway, you know what I mean. The point is, is that people can see things from different viewpoints. Now, detectives, my neighbour's one of them, senior detective, investigating crimes will tell you that witnesses who lie to cover up their roles all try to get their stories to match exactly in minute detail. Now, if that happens, they become very suspicious that there's some collusion going on here. You know what I'm saying? Probably so do you with some of your kids sometimes. <laughs> so in reality, witnesses see the same incident always reported with some measure of uniqueness. Does that make sense? Because sometimes even husband and wife can report the same event and I'm going, are you two talking about the same thing? <laughs> So in reality, that is a mark of uniqueness and authenticity. Another angle is they don't exaggerate the miracles of Jesus. Why not be, include more phenomenal details? Let's say Jesus turned his arms into wings and flew off. Why not? I mean, think about it. If you're going to invent some miracle claims, what kind of details would you insert? And another thought is this. The men who wrote these Gospels did not deny their testimony. See, many people will die for what they believe. I'm not, be careful here because you'll be trapped otherwise. But I don't know anybody who will ever die for a knowing lie. You know what I'm saying there? Okay, so if they knew they'd fabricated it and it was a lie, why die? And every one of them did. You would not die for a lie that you knew was a lie. So, they didn't deny their testimony under persecution or in the face of death. So what happened 2,000 years ago so radically changed these cowards into, remember, locked up in a room, running away, not helping Jesus through his toughest time, to be so radically changed, they said, I don't care, 
I'll go to the lions, I'll be crucified upside down, I'll be boiled in the lion. I will never deny what I've seen now. Something happened, explain that. What turned them to be fearless evangelists who marched into the temple grounds knowing that they've effectively been disowned by the Jewish religion of their day? Completely disowned, thrown out as apostates. How could they hold to the testimony even as they were beaten, burned, tortured and killed? It was that real. The only explanation is that they saw the risen Lord and that gave them the strength to hold on because they realised this life's just passing through. Another tool at our disposal we can use to determine the truth of eyewitness testimonies and some lawyers amongst us know the answer to this one, are the rules of evidence. Dr. Simon Greenleaf is a founder of Harvard Law School and developed what became known as rules of evidence. Rules that determine what kind of testimony, what kind of exhibits and what kind of information can be admitted in evidence in a court of law. What rules determine that? Well, Greenleaf was actually a highly respected professor and attorney, but he was not a Christian. In fact, he was highly sceptical of Christianity and would often poke fun of believers in his class. How many saw God's not dead? Okay, so you get the idea. This is who he was at Harvard. But some Christian students, this is factual, you can read it and follow it up, challenged him to apply his own standards for the courtroom evidence and apply it to the claim Christ rose from the dead. Greenleaf accepted the challenge, and it's well documented, and applied his own high legal standards to try and prove the resurrection account to be false with a capital F. Here they are. Are the witnesses honest? Are they telling the truth? Are the witnesses believable? Are there enough witnesses? Are the witnesses consistent? Now instead of finding what he'd hoped, that the evidence wouldn't stand up, he became so convinced by the New Testament that the New Testament accounts were reliable, that he could present them in a court of law, he became a believer. He concluded the writers were telling the truth. They were reliable. So question four, what about other evidence that shows the New Testament to be reliable? Yes, history confirms the New Testament is reliable. The entire Bible is filled with historical names, places and events. It covers a period of more than 4,000 years. It's a record of actual empires, nations and rulers. The Old Testament mentions national groups of people such as the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Moabites, and others, and the Philistines. The New Testament accurately details names and titles of various people in the Roman Empire at that time. It accurately positions cities, ports, as well as the distances to travel between A and B, like your GPS. It will take you three days, 27 minutes. Not quite 27 minutes, but it was a four-day walk or a three-week walk. All those things. It includes data about customs and politics, who is in power even the food they eat, the clothing, the time. So the Bible is proven to be historically accurate in all areas. 
Now, here's some examples of this non-biblical. Remember, I'm not appealing to the Bible here. Josephus confirms the New Testament reliability. He's not a friend of Christianity's. He's a man who was a historian who was alive at this time and he wrote, he was the official Roman historian, famous, non-friendly Jewish historian and a contemporary of Jesus. Flavius Josephus wrote in an explicit explicit passage in the Antiquities of the Jews, which I have a copy of in my library, and he says this. At this time, a wise man who was called Jesus, and he goes on to describe him, I've got time to go through the whole thing, Pilate ordered him to be condemned and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. So that means afterwards, they stuck to it. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Roman historian recorded that. Didn't refute it, as if you read through his whole book. A non-Christian historian recording, not biblical, extra biblical, that means not using the Bible, recorded his death and resurrection. There it is, you can read more of it. The book's about this fact. All sorts of interesting history going on at that time. There's lots more of it too. Now, together, Tacitus and Thallus, two Roman other historians, because it wasn't just one Roman historian, just like we don't have one historian today. There was multiple of them. Record that Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate in the time of the Emperor Tiberius. They also chronicle the following events at the time of Christ died. Now, this is interesting. Secular, non-Christian, non-friendly. What did they say? Apart from many other things. On the whole world, they oppressed a most fearful darkness. The rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and the other districts were thrown down. Does that sound strangely familiar? At the crucifixion, the earthquake that happened? And at that moment, the Bible says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. It's exactly what the Scriptures are talking about. And again, in Luke, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. There you see a secular historian agreeing with what the Scriptures record accurately. Now the accounts of secular historians and religious leaders, I could go on for hours about this, but I'm just going to draw your attention. These are Jewish, non-friendly to Christian and Gentile. Support these facts about Jesus' life. They record the facts. And again, you want to source them, grab the remainder of Dr. Geisler's book. Number one, they all agree he was from Nazareth. He lived a virtuous life. He performed very unusual feats. He introduced new teaching. It was radical. The whole Jewish system kaput. The law fulfilled in him. New covenant, old covenant ripped up. That was the whole thing being ripped down the middle. The holy of holies gone. Now the, the temple of God, the spirit of God lives within us. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Secular historians document this. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. We just saw that with Josephus. His disciples worshipped him. Other secular sources say that. His teachings and disciples spread rapidly. Boy, did they ever, even under tremendous persecution, like, like ISIS right now. Be crucified. They were being crucified. I love it that our dear brothers in faith are not giving up the faith. 
They are standing for what they believe. There's a whole other weight to this that sometimes we in our wisdom will miss. His followers had contempt for death. And by the way, material goods. What the heck? We've lost the plot when material goods completely dominate our lives. His followers renounced those material goods. They didn't care. It's a means to an end. You're not taking anything with you. So what about archaeology? Archaeology confirms the New Testament's reliability. Those of you who came to uh, my evening on Israel saw this place here. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus' hometown where Jesus taught and has been found. Interestingly, it's not very big. They went to Capernaum where the Sabbath came. Jesus went into the synagogue and sat down and began to teach. This is the place, by the way, where the four men brought the paralytic. Remember, ripped up the roof and dropped him through. That's the place. You can go there today and see it. It's stunning. And by the way, just down the road, where are we? Uh, let me think about where that is. Over there, you've got the Peter's house. Now, the Catholics are pretty quick on the mark there. They've got some great historians. They grabbed that place and on, they built a, a, a kind of like a chapel over the top of it. Peter's house. And there's lots of good archaeological evidence to point exactly what that is, Peter's house. Here's something else from archaeology. Caiaphas, the family tomb, was accidentally discovered by workers constructing a road. And the archaeologists confirmed there were 12 ossuaries. Now, an ossuary is a box, not much bigger than that speaker. That's about how big they are, the stone. And in those days, what you'd do is you'd grab the body, you'd slip it into a, a tomb like Jesus, stick the stone across, come back in a year's time, grab the bones, stick them into a box. You can fit a stack of people in a box that big when the bones are just condensed, compressed, right? That's how they did it, to save space. In an ossuary, they found 12 of these containing 63 individuals. There's about five people a box. Now, the most beautifully decorated one, though, that one that you can see right there of the ossuaries was inscribed with the name Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And that was the full name of the priest who arrested Jesus as documented by Joseph, uh, Josephus and also the Scriptures. Inside were the remains of a 60-year-old male, almost certainly the remains of Caiaphas. And you today can go to his original house. And there's a whole bunch of information I gave those who went to Israel to see that, to prove that. Also, the pool of Siloam where Jesus cured the blind. Moving on here. This is an interesting one. The inscription with the name Pontius Pilate was only discovered the year I was born, 1961. That block, what they used to do in the old days, after people had trashed places, rather than take all the rubble and cut it to the tip, they'd just knock the thing over, sort of crush it down, and then use that as a base for the platform going up again. They'd use it as fill. Well, he yanked this thing out, and there is the inscription in that one, Pontius Pilate, used as a reused stairway in the theatre. Next one. I mean, there's many of these. That's the crucifixion, typical victim from the first century. And by the way, notice where the spikes go through. It never goes through here, just here. So that's, again, folklore. It goes through here. It does not. It goes through here. That's where the spikes come from. There's a real bones. So let me wrap this up. Archaeology has provided us with one more reason after another to accept the New Testament documents. The archaeologist Nelson Gluck wrote this. It may be stated categorically. 
that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. None. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail the historical statements that you will find in the Bible. Now, if you're one of them one, you have a penchant for archaeology, can I recommend my friend Dr. Joe Holden's book? He's the guy that's in charge of the dig right now at Sodom. His mates are doing one at Gomorrah. Actually, the Greeks are doing that. But he's been there 12 times and they're hoeing through that. That is a brilliant book if you want to get to the archaeology of the Bible. Fascinating book. Highly recommend it. So, what have we learned? As for the claim that the New Testament is filled with errors, we've found the opposite to be true. It's actually accurate, reliable, and trustworthy. It's a document that we can trust. It has been written within the eyewitness's lifetime. We've proven that. Not enough time went by for inventions of myths or legend. It's a time frame that's reliable. You say something, people can check it out. I like that. Check it out. By the way, Christian, do not accept everything you're told, even in Christian circles. Check it out. Check it out. Get to the bottom of it. The documents we saw have been well copied, very well copied. The writers were reliable. The New Testament accounts are based on eyewitness testimony of honest men who even included their botch-ups, which probably you and I wouldn't have sung at the top of our lungs. Possibly. The New Testament has been repeatedly confirmed by outside sources. This is solid. There is far more solid evidence for the New Testament than for any other ancient document. Boom. No other ancient account has more manuscripts to check or compare accuracy with. And no other one has been more accurately copied. More detail again in the book. So when the New Testament says Jesus said something, we can know he actually said it because we have all those copies to check. And that he did so, and we can know he actually did it. His life, death, and resurrection is not just a good story. It actually happened and has changed the world and will change eternity. It is not just a story. It's true. It's historical. So today we have responded to the fourth challenge and shown that we can rely on the New Testament. We'll turn to the challenges that focus on Jesus in the next week or two. And I just want to give you a preempt for next week. The first objection we're going to examine next week is, was Jesus really God? Okay, we've accepted that he was here. He was a real person. We can see that. Secular sources even say that. But was he God? Did he even claim to be God? And by the way, what's the evidence? Father, you're just amazing. I pray that, Lord, in these weeks, for those who are seeking you, they will be drawn with integrity to check out the facts and then to draw implications from those facts because they're not just facts that hang out there. Lord, I thank you that your spirit is drawing people and is working in people's lives. I thank you that you're helping Christians stand firm and not give in and be bullied by the opinions of this world 
which are oft misguided and misinformed. Father, I pray that you'd give courage to Christians to speak up what they know to be true. I pray that you give them opportunity, Lord, at work and at school, with their neighbours, even their friends. And when things come up, that they will be prepared to give an answer with gentleness and respect. And Father, I pray you bring back to their remembrance. truthfulness, the accuracy Lord of what your word declares. Holy Spirit bring back to them the things that you have done and said. Thank you Lord that we serve a living God who is so real and loves us dearly.